History of Africana Philosophy by Chike Jeffers and Peter Adamson, brought to you with the support of the King's College London Philosophy Department and the LMU in Munich, online at historyofphilosophy.net. Today's episode, Crossing Paths, the Last Years of Malcolm X and Martin Luther King Jr. They met each other only once. On March 26, 1964, Martin Luther King Jr. and Malcolm X were both in Washington, D.C., attending the U.S. Senate's debate on the bill that would become the Civil Rights Act. After King made statements to the press, to which X listened, the two men crossed paths. They agreed it was good to see each other, and X remarked, I'm throwing myself into the heart of the civil rights struggle. Soon they shook hands, and as photographers eagerly captured the moment, Malcolm said jokingly, now you're going to be investigated. This humorous remark is likely the reason for the grins on the two men's faces, in an iconic photo of the encounter. In episodes 97 and 99, we covered the lives of these two leaders up to 1963. That was the year of the March on Washington, the occasion for King's famous I Have a Dream speech, and an event X mocked at the time as nothing but a circus with clowns and all. We take up our story then at a point where the division and the enmity between these two leaders was at its most palpable, but we have begun with the story of their handshake and shared laughter, as we wish to tell in this episode how the two men, as activists and as philosophical thinkers, drew closer to one another during the last years of their lives. Malcolm X, who was born Malcolm Little on May 19, 1925, was murdered on February 21, 1965, thus ending his life before he reached his 40th birthday. Martin, born Michael King, on January 15, 1929, was murdered on April 4th, 1968, meaning that he too was cut down at the age of 39. The years 1964 and 1965 for Malcolm and 1964 to 1968 for Martin were short periods, no doubt, but they were also momentous ones full of change and tumult. From a philosophical perspective too, these years were of great importance. There's often no better way to appreciate a thinker's depth than to see how and why the thinker's thinking changed. The two most transformative events of Malcolm's final years occurred shortly before and shortly after the meeting with King in March of 1964. Earlier in that same month, he officially broke with the Nation of Islam. And in the next month, April, he completed the Hajj, the pilgrimage to Mecca that is required of all Muslims who are able to perform it. It was a highlight of the extensive international travel that he undertook that year, all of which helped to reshape his perspectives. Let us first turn, however, to the story of his departure from the religious organization that gave him X rather than Little as a last name, the organization whose rise to national prominence was due in no small part to his power as a spokesperson. There can be little doubt that that effectiveness was among the factors leading to X's break with the nation. His fame and charisma led others in the leadership to worry about just how powerful he might become. From X's perspective, another immensely painful factor was his realization that the organization's leader, the Honorable Elijah Muhammad, had been rather dishonorable by indulging in a series of extramarital affairs with women who worked for him as secretaries. In some cases, these affairs led to children. The nation's emphasis on moral rectitude, one of its greatest strengths as a means of transforming black lives, included the application of strict disciplinary measures on members who were found to have committed sins such as fornication and adultery. 
It devastated X to learn that the messenger had been systematically violating the very rules enforced so harshly on his followers. This was not enough by itself to push him out of the nation, which had saved him from a life of vicious criminality and which he had been tirelessly promoting for more than a decade. Beyond issues of envy and hypocrisy, there was also the philosophically significant question of what an organization like the nation was for. Under Elijah Muhammad, the nation strove to be apolitical, in spite of, or perhaps because of, the fact that it was viewed as a threat by government agencies and much of the general public. Members were discouraged from voting, for example. We have seen how X, as a spokesperson for the nation, mercilessly criticized the integrationist efforts of King and other civil rights leaders. But within the confines of the nation, it was difficult for him to articulate a clear alternative path of action, along which black people could be mobilized. Toward the end of 1963, he gave a speech called A Message to the Grassroots at a leadership conference in Detroit. It has been called a turning point precisely because of its forthright political engagement. The Chinese-American thinker and activist Grace Lee Boggs is said to have reacted to the speech by predicting that Malcolm would soon split with Elijah Muhammad. Less than two weeks later, President John F. Kennedy was shot and killed. This precipitated the most infamous of the moments leading up to X's break with the nation. Elijah Muhammad released a statement expressing shock over the president's assassination and instructed all of his ministers, including X, to make no comment on the matter. When filling in for Muhammad at a speaking engagement in New York, X carefully avoided all mention of the late president in his prepared remarks. His unprepared responses to questions from the press were not so cautious. When asked about Kennedy's assassination, he brought up the very recent assassination of the president of South Vietnam, the assassination in 1961 of Patrice Lumumba, who had been prime minister of the Congo upon its independence from Belgium, the assassination of civil rights leader Medgar Evers in the summer of 1963, and the church bombing in Birmingham, Alabama that had killed four little girls in the fall. Suggesting some level of responsibility on Kennedy's part for each of these events, X spoke of Kennedy's assassination as a case of chickens coming home to roost. Elijah Muhammad's initial response to this disobedience was to impose a 90-day suspension, but this eventually turned into an indefinite suspension. Thus, in early March of 1964, Malcolm finally came to terms with the fact that he had to step out on his own. He formed a new religious organization called Muslim Mosque Incorporated. A month later, he flew to Cairo to begin a trip that would take him to Egypt, Lebanon, Nigeria, Ghana, Morocco, Algeria, and of course, Saudi Arabia, where he performed the Hajj along with many thousands or even millions of other pilgrims. After his return to America, X founded yet another organization. The intention was certainly not to replace Muslim Mosque Incorporated because this new organization was purposefully secular, a vehicle for protest rather than religious instruction. One of his collaborators in this enterprise, John Henrik Clark, was a historian whose stature in the development of Africana studies as a discipline can be compared to that of Carter G. Woodson. It was apparently Clark who suggested that X's new group be called the Organization of Afro-American Unity. This name made the initiative's pan-Africanist orientation explicit, as it suggested a sort of analog to the Organization of African Unity, an intergovernmental organization of independent African nations that had formed only one year prior. In 2002, it would be disbanded and replaced by what we have today, the African Union. The political position that X aimed to promote through the OAAU was that the oppression of Black Americans ought to be seen as a violation not merely of civil rights, but of human rights. 
The United States should therefore be held accountable for its crimes on the world stage, that is, through the United Nations. From July to November of 1964, X undertook another international journey, again starting in Egypt. In Cairo, he attended the second annual meeting of the OAU and circulated a call for African countries to aid in the project of bringing the United States to account. He went on to spend time in Gaza, Kuwait, Lebanon, Sudan, Ethiopia, Kenya, Tanzania, Nigeria, Ghana, Liberia, Guinea, and Senegal. As he arrived in these various places, he was increasingly received as a statesman and given audiences with national leaders. In Kenya, for example, he met with the president, Jomo Kenyatta, and two of the country's other important political figures, Oginga Odinga and Tom Mboya. After he was given the chance to address the Kenyan parliament, that legislative body passed a resolution in support of the human rights struggles of African Americans. Upon returning to the United States, X was plunged back into the controversy of his break with the nation. He came to be viewed in the organization as a dangerous traitor who was tearing down the good work of Elijah Muhammad by publicly discussing his failings. The controversy even ruined the great friendship between X and Muhammad Ali. While the famed boxer was still known as Cassius Clay, he had become interested in the nation's message. During this time, X became his mentor, spiritual advisor, and confidant. But by the time he officially joined the nation and was given his new name by Elijah Muhammad, Ali was forced to choose between the nation and Malcolm. X's first trip to Ghana was in fact marred by an encounter with Ali, who was also touring West Africa. Ali snubbed him, saying simply, Brother Malcolm, you shouldn't have crossed the Honorable Elijah Muhammad. The break with the nation was heartbreaking. It was also dangerous. Threats and foiled plots by members of the nation preceded the fateful day in February of 1965 that saw X shot down on stage while delivering a lecture at the Audubon Ballroom in Manhattan. Aussie Davis, the famous black actor and playwright who had been a good friend to Malcolm, provided a memorable eulogy at the funeral. He pointed out X's significance as a transformative thinker by reflecting on what it meant to call him an Afro-American. I say the word again, as he would want me to, Afro-American. Afro-American Malcolm, who was a master, was most meticulous in his use of words. Nobody knew better than he the power words have over minds of men. Malcolm had stopped being a Negro years ago. It had become too small, too puny, too weak a word for him. Malcolm was bigger than that. Malcolm had become an Afro-American, and he wanted so desperately that we, that all his people, would become Afro-Americans too. Davis showed his own mastery of language at various points in the eulogy, memorably calling X, our living black manhood and our own black shining prince who didn't hesitate to die because he loved us so. King reacted to X's murder by sending a telegram to X's wife, Betty Shabazz, that read in part, I was certainly saddened by the shocking and tragic assassination of your husband. While we did not always see eye to eye on methods to solve the race problem, I always had a deep affection for Malcolm and felt that he had the great ability to put his finger on the existence and root of the problem. He was an eloquent spokesman for his point of view, and no one can honestly doubt that Malcolm had a great concern from the problems we face as a race. This talk of deep affection seems very graceful when we think of some of the harsh insults X lobbed at King. Perhaps some of the recent changes in X's life and thought helped King to appreciate how linked in spirit he and X actually were. For there had indeed been significant shifts in X's philosophy during that time. Leaving the nation behind allowed X to commit himself openly in both word and deed 
to political action aimed at ending the oppression of African-Americans, leaving behind the nation's policy of staying out of politics. This is exemplified by his emphasis on unity among African-Americans across religious and other lines of difference. As early as the aforementioned speech, Message to the Grassroots, in 1963, he proclaimed, What you and I need to do is learn to forget our differences. When we come together, we don't come together as Baptists or Methodists. You don't catch hell because you're a Baptist, and you don't catch hell because you're a Methodist. You don't catch hell because you're a Democrat or a Republican. You don't catch hell because you're a Mason or an Elk, and you sure don't catch hell because you're an American. Because if you were an American, you wouldn't catch hell. You catch hell because you're a Black man. X repeated this sentiment, and in similar words, in what is perhaps his most famous speech of all, The Ballot or the Bullet, delivered in Cleveland, Ohio, on April 3rd, 1964. At another point in that speech, he spoke of taking a page out of the book of Christian evangelist Billy Graham. Just as Graham would come to town, attract people to Christ, and then encourage these new converts to find a local church, X vowed to begin spreading the gospel of black nationalism in such a way that he would strengthen existing civil rights organizations rather than be at odds with them. He said, if the NAACP is preaching and practicing the gospel of black nationalism, join the NAACP. If CORE is spreading and practicing the gospel of black nationalism, join CORE. Join any organization that has a gospel that's for the uplift of the black man. This did not, of course, mean that X was replacing his separatism with a newfound endorsement of the goal of integration, as pursued by mainstream civil rights organizations. As he indicates in this very quote, he continued to preach the same gospel, a rather ironic label for the secular message of black nationalism. Still, remembering the harsh criticism X previously aimed at these same civil rights organizations, we can certainly say that it was a major concession to advise joining a group like the NAACP in the furtherance of black nationalism. Evidently, his conception of black nationalism had become more capacious. In The Ballot or the Bullet, X defines black nationalism in three related ways, as a political philosophy, an economic philosophy, and a social philosophy. Most importantly for our present purposes, he claims that the political philosophy of black nationalism means that the black man should control the politics and the politicians in his own community. One way for black people to control the politics and politicians in their communities would be by achieving a separate state, as envisioned by the Nation of Islam. But this definition can also accommodate the less dramatic idea of black people using their vote effectively. Hence the words that give this speech its title, the black man in the black community has to be re-educated into the science of politics so he will know what politics is supposed to bring him in return. Don't be throwing out any ballots. A ballot is like a bullet. You don't throw your ballots until you see a target. Now admitting the importance of the vote, X could hardly fail to acknowledge the importance of the struggle for voting rights. This moved him closer to the civil rights movement and to King. Like Frederick Douglass before him, Malcolm X came to reconceive political engagement as a virtue rather than a vice. Even as X sought in this period to foster greater unity among African-American activists and organizations, he also argued for greater unity on a global, international, and interracial scale. In The Ballot or the Bullet, he says, expand the civil rights struggle to the level of human rights. Take it to the United Nations, where our African brothers can throw their weight on our side, where our Asian brothers can throw their weight on our side, where our Latin American brothers can throw their weight on our side, and where 800 million Chinamen are sitting there waiting to throw their weight on our side. 
Most remarkable in this cosmopolitan turn is the way that X came to think differently about the significance of race in relation to white people. This new perspective was related to his experience of the Hajj. He had not been prepared for the effect it had on him to see tens of thousands of pilgrims from all over the world, and to notice that they were, as he put it in a letter, of all colors, from blue-eyed blondes to black-skinned Africans, but were all participating in the same ritual, displaying a spirit of unity and brotherhood that my experiences in America had led me to believe never could exist between the white and non-white. For X, letting go of the nation came to mean letting go of the unorthodox aspects of its version of the Islamic faith, including its myth of the creation of white people, who were considered devils by the nation. Whites were said to be a race originally grafted from the original black people of the earth through the efforts of a mad scientist named Yakub. James Cohn suggests a distinction here between taking the statement the white man is the devil to be naturally true and taking it to be historically true. Initially, Cohn writes, Malcolm was completely persuaded that it was true in both senses. After his break with Muhammad, he dropped the idea of the white man as the devil by nature. This too brought him closer in position to King, given the high value King placed on interracial cooperation in the struggle to end oppression. Which is not to say that, as in a good podcast on the history of philosophy, no gap remained. On the topic of violence, X does not seem to have budged much, if at all. It's no accident that the famed 1964 speeches about bullets as well as ballots. Its title is a warning that violence will erupt if other channels of change remain blocked. He was always careful to avoid explicit calls to violence. As he put it, I'm nonviolent with those who are nonviolent with me. On the other hand, if you are in danger of dying for your cause because of the violence of others, X gives this advice, don't die alone, let your dying be reciprocal. This is what is meant by equality. On King's side, there was likewise no abandonment of the commitment to nonviolence, even in the face of violence, during the last years of his life. According to Cohn, this key difference would have made a genuine coalition unlikely, even if X and King had both lived much longer. Their views on the matter of violence were rooted in their understandings of faith, making the development of a compromised position rather unlikely. With respect to this key issue, they clearly viewed each other's positions as completely unreasonable. Cohn writes, As Malcolm considered Martin's views on nonviolence foolish, so Martin viewed Malcolm's self-defense philosophy as foolish. If Malcolm thought nonviolence disarmed blacks, Martin considered Malcolm's program of reciprocal bleeding as nothing short of suicide. So, in 1965, the year that would see Malcolm's life reach its own violent end, Martin was still pursuing his program of nonviolence, and with considerable success. He led a massive march from Selma, Alabama, to the state's capital, Montgomery, in a protest for voting rights. Some months later, President Lyndon B. Johnson signed the Voting Rights Act, one of the crowning victories of the civil rights movement. Yet on the heels of these successes, we find King moving towards viewpoints associated with X. Cohn argues that this shows the impact of the Watts riots, which exploded just five days after the signing of the Voting Rights Act. Some argue that this disturbance should not be labeled as riots, but rather an uprising or insurrection. Whatever we call them, it is clear that the days of violence and destruction in the Watts area of Los Angeles expressed African-American anger and frustration on a scale seldom seen before. One of the chants heard repeatedly in the streets alongside the more famous Burn Baby Burn was Long Live Malcolm X. Who, had he been alive to see it, would probably have been unsurprised, 
having repeatedly predicted that tensions would bubble over in this way. King, by contrast, was taken off guard by what he saw and heard as he visited Watts in the aftermath. Speaking with Bayard Rustin in the evening, he reflected on how his efforts in the movement thus far failed to speak to the problems facing the community there. I worked to get these people the right to eat hamburgers, and now I've got to do something to help them get the money to buy it. He put it rather more poetically in an article published in the Saturday Review. The flames of Watts illuminated more than the western sky, they cast light on the imperfections in the civil rights movement and the tragic shallowness of white racial policy in the explosive ghettos. The title of this piece was Next Stop, the North. That made clear King's plan, one he had devised even before the eruption in Watts, to expand the use of nonviolent direct action beyond the South so as to address barriers facing African Americans in places like the South Side and West Side of Chicago, Watts in Los Angeles, or Harlem in New York. This shift in itself shows a convergence of his work with that of Malcolm. The differences between the two should never be reduced to geography, with King working in the South and X in the North, but this was an important contrast between their ministries. The urban ghettos had formed Malcolm, as we know from the autobiography, and he had long protested the conditions there. So King's next stop was territory long ago marked by X. Martin went to Chicago, moving with his wife Coretta into an apartment on the west side to bring attention to poor housing conditions. While leading a march through a white neighborhood, King was struck in the head with a rock thrown by a member of the vicious crowd. He commented that the hostility and hate he experienced during that march topped anything he had encountered in the South. The Chicago campaign did result in some concessions from the city's government, but the effort is often thought of as one of King's failures. Even as King grappled with the social conditions that had inspired X's message, he also had to figure out how to engage with the increasing popularity of a new message we are speaking, as you may have guessed, about black power as a slogan and a movement. As we'll discuss in a future episode, the slogan emerged within the national consciousness after Stokely Carmichael led a crowd in chanting the phrase in Greenwood, Mississippi. King was very resistant to the phrase at first, believing it to sound too much like black domination or supremacy. Eventually, though, he sought to put his own positive spin on black power. He begins his essay, Black Power Defined, from 1967 by saying, when a people are mired in oppression, they realize deliverance only when they have accumulated the power to enforce change. The essay thus begins by recognizing power as a proper target of black struggle, and then moves on to discuss gains and challenges in the attainment of power in the spheres of ideas, economics, and politics. With respect to black power in ideas, King makes the argument that black people have decisively influenced white thought in America through the very act of marching in protest. King continued to develop his assessment of black power in his book, Where Do We Go From Here? Chaos or Community. He opted in this book to point out both positive potential and persistent problems in the phrase as commonly understood, unsurprisingly focusing many of his critical comments on the embrace of violence by black power advocates. For example, he engages critically with Franz Fanon's The Wretched of the Earth, which, as we'll see, was influential on black power activists like Carmichael and H. Rapp Brown. For King, black power is not just about political and economic change, but, crucially, psychological change as well. King endorses the positive value in calling the Negro to a new sense of manhood, to a deep feeling of racial pride, and to an audacious appreciation of his heritage. Cohn suggests that King cherished black power as a way of building black self-esteem, above all its other functions. 
In this way, he became more like X, for whom it was always a top priority to encourage black people to love themselves. Thus, across the 60s, we first have Malcolm X moving toward a more expansive notion of black nationalism, one which could in many ways accommodate King's program, and then from the other direction, King adopting an expansive treatment of black power. Their approaches had seemed far apart, but were now finding middle ground. And there are at least two more important respects in which we can see King and X as converging. First, with respect to something we've already mentioned, the necessity of thinking globally. We have seen that for X, this meant seeking international cooperation to hold the United States accountable for its treatment of African Americans. King agreed with this sentiment in an interview published in Playboy magazine, conducted by none other than Alex Haley, X's collaborator on the autobiography. King said, I think that in every possible instance, Africans should use the influence of their governments to make it clear that the struggle of their brothers in the U.S. is part of a worldwide struggle. King's internationalism was most prominent, however, not in any request for other nations to stand in solidarity with African Americans, but rather in his own solidarity with the people of Vietnam during the Vietnam War. In a 1967 speech at the Riverside Church in New York City, King declared, I knew that I could never again raise my voice against the violence of the oppressed in the ghettos without having first spoken clearly to the greatest purveyor of violence in the world today, my own government. This strong and clearly principled stance isolated King from a number of other leaders in the civil rights movement, and it revealed a King who could tear into America's hypocrisy and self-justification with a power similar to that of X. A second point of convergence was an increasingly critical view of capitalism. Unlike the other points we've covered where one of the two men came to appreciate what the other thinker had long defended, in this case, both were evolving in a similar direction. Malcolm X certainly wasn't led to question capitalism by either the Garveyite doctrines of his childhood or the economic practices of the Nation of Islam. Both valued some kind of black capitalism. It was especially his time in Africa that led to a shift in X's thinking on economics. When asked in late May of 1964 what political and economic system he wanted, X responded at first by saying that he didn't know that he was flexible. But then he added, all of the countries that are emerging today from under the shackles of colonialism are turning towards socialism. This was, in his view, no accident. X went on to say, you can't have capitalism without racism. As for King, he was exposed to Marx during his education, so from early on, he had a sense of how capitalism might be criticized. As a leader, though, he tended to distance himself and the civil rights movement from communism, especially on the grounds of the latter's atheism. Again, travel was a factor in his change of mind. A visit to Sweden impressed King greatly, and he credited democratic socialism with the country's success. Around this time, he began to critique capitalism as well as communism. Thus, in the book, Where Do We Go From Here?, King advocates for a guaranteed income on the grounds that the time has come for us to civilize ourselves by the total, direct, and immediate abolition of poverty. Anti-poverty activism was central to King's activities in the time just before he was murdered at the Lorraine Hotel in Memphis, Tennessee in April of 1968. He had been planning his Poor People's Campaign, complete with a new march on Washington to demand an economic bill of rights. He was in Memphis to support a strike by black sanitation workers. We can only speculate how far King might have gotten in pressing for a restructuring of America's economic system had he lived. 
to see a radical case of such restructuring, it actually wasn't necessary to venture as far as the decolonializing African nations. In Cuba, an economic revolution had followed the political revolution of the 1950s. But then again, Malcolm X didn't even need to leave Harlem to meet the president of the newly communist country, Fidel Castro. While in town to address the United Nations, Castro stayed at a hotel in Harlem at the invitation of X. Thus, there are photos of Castro talking with X, images almost as iconic as the photos of King and X's exchange at the U.S. Senate. Unfortunately, we know of no photos of Castro with another Africana thinker, Juan René Betancourt. He was a homegrown Afro-Cuban intellectual who was cautiously optimistic about the revolution and who received an official post from Castro before later going into exile. Discussing Betancourt will offer us an opportunity to explore black political thought on that island in the 20th century more generally. Any decent snooker player can put spin on a cue ball, but that's nothing compared to the revolutionary action we'll be seeing with Cuba next time here on the History of Africana Philosophy. <music>